0: And now, this afternoon, in the more moments that remain, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we'll read a portion of the chapter beginning in verse 23. I'm passing over now the first part of the chapter that gives us the account of the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. You recall Saul, he's on his way to Damascus to arrest and imprison or execute Christians. He meets with the risen, glorified Lord on the way. He's knocked off his high horse, so to speak, with a blinding glory that comes from God. And the persecutor would become uh, the most fervent preacher, of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we read in verse 23 now. Well, let's back up a verse to verse 22. That might give us a better sense of where we're at, where we read, But Saul increased the more in strength, this is after his conversion now, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So you get the picture now with Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor has become a preacher, and he's so skilled in handling the scriptures that he's able to confute and confound the Jews at Damascus. And their reaction to him then is given to us in verse 23. I suppose you can make a connection here to what we considered this morning. Paul has become the troubler of Israel, you could say. So we read verse 23. And after that many days were fulfilled the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, And brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. And the result of all this then is given to us in verse 31. And this is what I call your attention to this afternoon when we read, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's seek the Lord in prayer before we look more closely at this text. Let's pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee, Lord, for the history it records of the early church. And, O Lord, how we desire in so many respects to be like that early church. May we be convinced the way they were, that Christ was indeed risen from the dead. May our zeal, O Lord, come closer to theirs. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt equip us for whatever it is we must face, even in the days in which we live. So draw near to us now and hear our prayers and guide us now in the study of thy word. May our hearts be open to hear it and to heed it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Even though the ninth chapter of the book of Acts reveals to us what arguably would be one of the most important conversions in all of church history, we must understand that the focus in this chapter is not so much on Saul of Tarsus as it is on Christ's church. The church of Christ was advancing. It is true that it faced a formidable fall, a foe in Saul. Here was a man and I love the way this is described, this is so graphic when he's described as breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord's disciples. Reminds me a little bit of an angry bull in a china shop pounding his hoof and snorting out of his nose and just looking to destroy things. Well, that was the antagonism of the Jews and Saul of Tarsus in particular uh, toward Christians. Okay? But in the end... He's taken down as he meets the Lord on the Damascus Road, and then he's taken out of the way. Saul appears initially to be a man without a country, so to speak. He had a prominent position among the Jews, but now they try to kill him. He tries to join himself to the church. They are initially and understandably afraid of him, When at last he does gain entrance into the church, the Jews at Jerusalem take up the same plot as the Jews at Damascus, and now they're seeking to kill Paul. Paul was the man executing, the man executing the killings, and now all of a sudden Paul is targeted to be killed by them himself. And as a result, he must, with the aid of the brethren, flee to Caesarea, And from there, back to Tarsus, his hometown, where he might hope to find safety among his own kinsmen. Largely as a result of the antagonist being converted and then removed, we're able to read in verse 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, Oh, we certainly see, don't we, that the Lord knows how to take care of his own. I can remember from my college history class that covered the time of the Reformation. Such things as what we read of in Acts 9 were vividly presented to us by Dr. Penosian. You can read of these things, similar things happening in the providence of God in order to protect his church, At the time the Pope would have the leverage to do great harm to the Lutherans, a distraction would arise. An invasion by the Turks, for example. Or there would be a falling out between the Pope and some of the German princes. A need would be created that would make it necessary for the German uh, princes to have the support of the Lutherans, so they're certainly not going to persecute them if they need them for some other civic cause. And through varying political circumstances, God, in his providence, would protect and prosper his church. The animosity of the world toward Christ and toward the gospel would not cease and has not ceased. But the world's attention could be diverted, or the world would be divided, or God would move in some other way in his sovereign rule to protect and advance his cause. Today, hostility toward Christianity is as fierce as it's ever been. Perhaps no other time in history has been so dangerous for Christian missionaries a few of you perhaps would remember when Reuben Zartman was with us that was so long ago you remember when Reuben told us back then that it was nearly impossible for missionaries to purchase life insurance because the risk was so great that they would be killed in their service for Christ That was years ago. It hasn't gotten any better since then. It has been claimed that the Christian church today is suffering persecution to a degree that is unprecedented in the history of the church. We don't see it here so much yet, although as I said this morning, we're starting to see the fires begin to be stoked and flare up even in our own land. And we're certainly aware of the attack that's been ongoing on Christian values that's been underway for many years in our own country. When you consider the history of hostility toward Christ, and you see and hear reports of atrocities that are committed against Christians in other places, And when you know the potential for that hostility breaking out full scale in our day and in our land, then you can have some appreciation for the words of verse 31 that tell us, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. What a blessing. What a rare blessing. What a tremendous blessing for the church, especially when you consider what those early Christians experienced. They had been scattered. We read that, I believe, at the beginning of chapter 8. Yeah, look at chapter 8. Just flip back a page and look with me at verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that is the death of Stephen, And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It is so easy to gloss over those words. They were all scattered abroad. Just take the time when you read that statement to try to envision what that means. Scattered from their homes having to leave familiar surroundings, having to leave uh, their vocations, their jobs, their lands, their farms, what have you, having to flee them. They were scattered. They were imprisoned. One of them had been put to death. And now we come to chapter 9 and to our text, and we read that now they enjoy rest. What a blessing, especially contrasted to what they had been through. But not only did they enjoy rest, but they knew how to take advantage of that rest. What did they do during that respite, if you will, from persecution? Well, the text tells us they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. I think the early church poses a very convicting challenge to us in this respect. And let's face it, for the most part, we have known rest in our Christianity all our lives. We have not been scattered yet. We haven't been imprisoned, though that's starting to change for some. Broadly speaking, I think you would have to acknowledge We're a church at rest. And the question we need to consider this afternoon is what are we doing with that rest? I'm afraid that to a large degree the church is putting that rest to misuse. We're resting in the world. We're availing ourselves of all the world's delights and amusements to the point where many professing Christians are dominated by those things and are barely affected by the gospel and really know little of gospel power. And I'm afraid that there may be a sense in which our rest is becoming our curse. So today I want to look at this practice of the early church. And I want their example to instruct and challenge us. That early church certainly conveys a plain and powerful message to us when it says to us, we must take advantage of the rest that the Lord provides. We must take advantage of that rest. What a blessing to be at rest to have the matter of the eternal destiny of your soul settled so that you can be at rest, especially with regard to the most important issue, that being uh, your eternal destiny. What a blessing to be at rest and having that matter settled. So let's take note here of the actions of the early church during the time of her rest, And this is very simple, and it arises right out of the text. Consider with me, first of all, that we can take advantage of our rest, one, by being edified, by being edified. Verse 31, note it, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, This is actually the first time this word in the New Testament is translated this way. The Greek word shows up earlier than this, but in our English version, this is the first time we find the Greek word translated by this word edified, and the word means literally to build. To edify, to build. One and the same thing. So in Matthew 7, verse 24, we read, uh, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built, there's our word, built his house upon a rock. Matthew 23, verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And in Matthew 16, verse 18, last reference, I'll uh, submit to you here for the use of the Greek word to build. And I, Christ, also say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will Build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, same word as the word edify. Edify equals to build. Okay? That's the idea behind the term. Paul in Romans 15 and verse 20, he writes, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Peter makes graphic use of the term when he says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer us up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Here, then, is a very good way to take advantage of being at rest, taking advantage of peace and rest. We should be built up or edified. Another way you could state this is to say we must grow. We must grow. Peter tells us that we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't take advantage of peace and rest by settling for stunted growth, but avail yourself. Use your freedom rather to edify yourself and to be built up to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Doesn't the picture become clear then of what the early church was about. Those early Christians had the desire to learn all they could about Jesus Christ. Can't you picture the enthusiasm with which they would have read and studied their Bibles? Can't you feel something of the excitement that would have gripped them as they discover for the first time how everything they had ever learned about those Old Testament rituals and sacrifices taught them about Christ and his atoning death? Can't you see them in the state of rest, conversing with each other, sharing with each other fresh discoveries of Christ? Things they had never seen before, but now see so clearly. And this action all takes place within the framework of the joy of sins forgiven and the assurance of heaven and everlasting life. You know, when the Lord moves in revival blessing, the people of God don't want to talk about anything else. Jonathan Edwards, in his account... On revival, he describes the way in which Christians passing each other on the street would stop and talk about the things of God. He reports that this practice became so common and so widespread that Christians actually had to guard themselves against neglecting their duties in employment. Can you imagine that? Bosses having a hard time getting their employees to get to work because they're so busily engaged in talking about God. And Christians had to be on their guard. They recognized, certainly, their obligation to their employer. But the desire was so strong, and the Spirit had moved with such power that it was the things of God that filled and thrilled their souls And that was all they wanted to talk about. They were that much taken up with Christ. And this is a large part of what it means to be edified. This is how we build each other up. The term speaks of the way that Christians minister to each other. We have an obligation to each other, you know, to build each other up in the faith. Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Romans 15 and verse 2, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Wherefore comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Paul recognized, didn't he, that in that church in Thessalonica, they were already engaged in this practice. And basically what he encourages them to do is keep it up. Do it even more. In each of these three verses, we see that Edification is something that takes place as we minister to each other. We're called upon to build each other up in the faith. We're called upon to take one another to heart. We're challenged to search out ways in which we may encourage each other in the things of Christ. These are the things we can do and should do during times when we enjoy the rest of which the Lord provides. When we become slaves to our circumstances, then this ministry of mutual edification becomes rather difficult to execute. We're too distracted by other things. But there is no reason for us to be slaves to our circumstances when Christ has set us free. I could say much more about this precept of edification. The word occurs a number of times in the New Testament. We discover that underlying this mutual ministry to one another is Christian love. First Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, love, agape love, edifies. Ephesians four sixteen. This is a graphic description in this verse of how the church is meant to function. Listen to what Paul says: From whom the whole body, fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Boy, that's a verse you could really break down and spend a long time analyzing. I remember Dr. Cairns telling us this is a very difficult verse to preach. Uh, Be that as it may, it's not a very difficult verse to read. And we certainly discover just in the reading of it that we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play in the building up of each other. And this is what uh, church is intended to do, the edifying of itself in love. When Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, he stresses to them the truth that the gifts and ministries in the church must have edification as their aim. Let all things be done unto edifying. 1 Corinthians 14.26 On the other hand, things that don't contribute to edification are things that ought to be avoided. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Even the stern dealings that Paul took with the Christians who needed rebuke were done with an aim toward their edification. Twice, Paul stresses that his dealings with the saints at Corinth were designed for edification and not for destruction. We tend to think just the opposite, especially if we are on the recipient end of rebuke. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 8 For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. Oh, Paul was taking a stern dealing with the saints at Corinth they would be very tempted to think that since they've been taken out to the woodshed so to speak, uh, Paul didn't have a heart for them. Paul's just um, aiming to destroy them, but in fact his aim was their edification. 2 Corinthians 13.10. Therefore I write these things being absent, thus being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Keep that in mind if the day comes when You have to be dealt with by the minister or by the elders uh, with regard to correction or rebuke, what have you, that the aim behind it is edification and not destruction. You can tell the ones who view it to be destruction they'll pack up and leave. He doesn't like me anymore. He spoke the truth to me. (laughs) He exposed my sin and had the audacity to deal with it. No, the aim is edification and not destruction. And so we must make this our aim in our dealings with each other. We seek to encourage each other. We seek to minister grace to each other by our communication. We seek to find ways to demonstrate Christian love to one another. And we seek to keep one another on the right path. These contribute to our being edified or built up in the faith. May God give us the grace to conduct ourselves in this fashion, especially seeing that we are a church that is so free to do these things. We are a church at rest. But not only should we take advantage of our rest by edifying each other, But would you consider next, we take advantage of our rest by walking in the fear of the Lord. Look at it again, verse 31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. Oh, this is one of my pet peeves. You've probably figured out by now. If there is one realm in which the church in the book of Acts stands in stark contrast to what we see in our day, I would have to say it is in this realm of godly fear. Reverence toward Christ. Where do you find it today? Who can even tell you what it means? Or what it presupposes? It means respect, and it presupposes at least some knowledge of the character of God and the character of our Redeemer. It presupposes a consciousness that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe and that he is impeccably holy. Paul learned it when the blinding glory of our risen and exalted Savior appeared to him on the Damascus road. And before that manifestation of Christ, he is laid low. He fell to the earth, verse 4 tells us. And from there he trembled and was astonished, verse 6 tells us. The truth presented by this phrase is something that is consistent through the entire Bible. When men are faced with the glory of the Lord, there follows trembling and astonishment. Isaiah demonstrates that truth. Daniel and Ezekiel demonstrate that truth. Moses and Elijah demonstrate that truth. The parents of Samson demonstrate that truth. The Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos falling down dead before the glorified Christ demonstrates that truth. I think it's fair to conclude, therefore, that this was indeed the experience of Paul. And so is it the experience of anyone who gains in his heart a perception of the Lord's glory. They fall before Christ, and they tremble before Christ, as well they should. Here is the one who is altogether glorious. Here is the one who, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, uh, referring to Christ, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see. Oh, it was that blinding glory, that blinding manifestation of Christ in his glory that had knocked Paul to the earth and left him trembling and in astonishment before God. When we read, therefore, that those early Christians walked in the fear of the Lord, we're taught that they were conscious of who they worshipped and who they served. They were conscious of the contrast between Christ's glory and their own sinfulness, and it is the consciousness of this contrast which makes grace all the more amazing. And a lack of this consciousness makes grace very cheap and underappreciated if it's appreciated at all. How important is it then to understand the fear of the Lord? Well the Bible teaches very plainly that it is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Apart from this godly reverence, a Christian or a church has not begun to worship or serve or walk with Christ. So when I see on television a praise leader in one of the largest churches in some large city, leading people to jump up and down and clap their hands and spin in circles while they repeat a little course with little or no substance to it in a style that is patterned wholly after the world, I conclude that they're not conscious of the glory of the one they profess to worship and serve. You just don't find it that way throughout the Bible. I'm afraid that because life has been so easy in our time that those kinds of things have become very prominent. A church, however, that's been sorely tried, that has seen its members scattered and imprisoned, and then has seen its greatest antagonist converted and and removed, Sees fit in the simplicity of faith to give thanks for peace and rest and then to walk in the fear of the Lord. Oh, may this church be such a church. Every church, you know, wants to be like the church in the book of Acts. But it's amazing how few there are that actually study the book of Acts to see what that church is like. Most people catch on to two things. You want to be a church like the church in the book of Acts? You've got to grow large, and you've got to grow large fast, and you've got to speak in tongues. And uh, so that's what many attempt to do. Well, what about the preaching of Christ? What about the gospel? No, 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 that doesn't work. You don't get big, and you don't grow fast by doing that. Maybe that worked then, it doesn't work today. So the reasoning goes. To which I reply, it didn't work back then either. Certainly not as a method in and of itself. The only reason that the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of Christ contributed to fast growth and large growth is because the Spirit of God empowered the preaching of the Word. It wasn't because this was some Um, fail-proof way of growing the church. No, it took the movement of the Holy Spirit. May we have the same consciousness as the early church had of our Savior's glory and exaltation. And may that consciousness govern our worship and our service and our walk. Just one more thing here before we close. One more way in which the early church took advantage of its rest, we likewise can take advantage of our rest finally by walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Again, verse 31, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. And I would add to the reading here, if I may, from John chapter 14 verses 16 to 18. This is Christ speaking. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth Whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. What I want you to see from this promise of the Holy Spirit given to the disciples by Christ is that this was the way in which Christ would continue to fellowship or commune with his church. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, Christ says. He does that by his spirit. The church, during its times of rest Enjoyed the presence of Christ as Christ Himself was present by His Spirit. And this is what marks the difference between a church that is a living church and a church that is dead the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A dead church may do many things right, it may have the right orthodoxy, it might have good discernment to know what's real from what's phony. It might manifest zeal toward the cause of Christ's kingdom and yet know little or nothing of the presence of Christ. The church at Ephesus is a striking example. What is said to that church in the book of Revelation? You've left your first love. Oh, everything's functioning. All the External cogs in the motor, if you will, are all uh, rolling, but you've lost your first love. There's no communion with Christ. But a church that's walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost is a church that is knowing fellowship or communion with Christ. It's a church that establishes and maintains spiritual sensitivity to the things of God. I think it would be correct to say that it's a church that experienced the peace of God that passes all understanding and the joy of salvation, which is unspeakable and full of glory. Now the key to walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost is to sow to the Spirit and mortify the deeds of the flesh. So Paul writes in Galatians 6 and verse 8, He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And when I read that phrase, life everlasting, I believe that Paul has a quality of life in mind as well as the duration of life in mind. Here is high-quality spiritual life, sowing to the Spirit and, as a result, knowing the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Along these same lines is the admonition of Peter, that he gives us in his second epistle that we are to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and to temperance patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Christ. Oh, if there is one thing you don't want or need, it is unfruitful knowledge of the Lord Christ. I want to be fruitful in my walk with him. I want to be fruitful in my service to him. And in order for that to take place, I have to add these things to my faith that are listed there. He goes on to say a few verses later, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe he's talking about the kingdom in its present aspect. A bountiful entrance into this kingdom by adding these things to our faith. When we read of the early church then that the Lord gave them rest, and in that rest they were edified and walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, I think we're given a picture of those who are reaping life everlasting and knowing the abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Christ being ministered unto them. Could I, in closing, just say that in this condition of rest and reverence and comfort, we read at the end of our text that the churches were multiplied. This is the one notable factor about the church in Acts that most churches notice. They were multiplied. And so they reasoned that in order to be like the early church, we have to multiply... But I want you to see that there's a connection between the end of the verse and what precedes. It does not teach us that the churches were multiplied by catering to the world and by trying in every conceivable way to imitate the world in order to appeal to the world. The text indicates that their focus wasn't even on the world. It was on Christ. They were edified or built up in Christ. They reverenced Christ. They knew the comfort of salvation provided by Christ. I can't help but think that by focusing on their walk with Christ, their countenance glowed with the joy of the Lord and the peace of God that passes understanding. And there was, through that, a certain attraction to the world Those early Christians who had known so much trouble and affliction and yet knew great joy now in their appreciation and thanksgiving to God who had given them rest reflect that joy in their countenances, and as a result, they were multiplied. Oh, let's take advantage of our blessings today. Let's avail ourselves of all that God has given us. Let's edify one another. And walk in reverence and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and in the process, expect to be multiplied. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in Thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank Thee for what Thou dost teach us from Thy Word about the early church. We thank Thee for the clear uh, testimony from thy word that Christ was indeed spiritually present with his church. And Lord, we rejoice to know that Christ is in the same place today that he was in the days of the early church. He's exalted, ascended into heaven, sitting at thy right hand, and he is today building his church. We thank thee today, Lord, for the freedoms that we yet enjoy. We thank thee that we can meet the way we do without any fear of intimidation or being scattered. O Lord, may we take the right advantage of our rest by cultivating godly fear, knowing the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Lord, be our portion and may we indeed rest in Christ our Savior, and take advantage of that rest by doing the right things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.